Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, the co-founder of The Leveragists and Divisio, the all-new affiliate network for people doing good. We have a fantastic show lined up for you guys today. We have my co-host and all-around partner in crime, Jack Humphrey, joining us. Hello, Jack. Hello, how are you this fine day? I am doing well, but it's really wild. I've been sitting here watching for the last five minutes as a wall of water is approaching me. It's the weirdest thing. There's a a big, big storm coming in, and I can see the first bridge, but I can't see any of the rest of the world. It's completely disappeared. (laughs) So wild watching it come in. I'm trying to get a picture for you. Well, while you're doing that, I will introduce our guest today. How's that sound? Sounds like a great plan. (laughs) Stay dry. All right. So today, if you want to learn how to fix hunger, poverty, war, climate change while making a profit, listen to our guest today, Shell Horowitz the Transformpreneur, international speaker, best-selling author of Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, and founder of Going Beyond Sustainability. Shell, welcome to Leverage Masters. Thanks, Jack and Gina. And Gina, I hope you're staying dry. That sounds a little intense. I am. I'm not on the lanai, so I'm totally dry. <laughs> she is an adventurepreneur. She's always got some stories to tell from her lofty perch. She loves to watch eagles, a very uh, special eagle couple, (laughs) and on her eagle cam, and she also perches very high off the ground herself in her apartment. So I think, Gina, you're very much like the eagles that you love so much. That's a great analogy, Jack. I completely agree with you on that one. (laughs) Yeah. So hey, well, Shell, how have you been? We've uh, we've not talked in a long time. Long time no see. Yeah, I've been busy. I've been uh, over the last four years, really kind of reinventing the whole way I am in the business world. To uh, I, I mean, I've been running my business since 1981, uh, and it has morphed a few times before. This is, I think, the most significant morph and the one that's taking the longest, but. The idea that business should be solving things like hunger, poverty, war, and climate change is not so new, but I think this particular spin that I bring to it is the idea that you can do those things. You don't have to do them out of guilt and shame. You don't even have to do them through philanthropy, but you can do them by creating and marketing profitable products and services that are addressing these things directly. It's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my um, decades of of doing business. And I I feel that it's probably also the most important work I've ever done. It's tough, isn't it, thinking about ways to innovate this radically within a, a set of constructs that we've come up with as humans, how how economies work. Um, though they're different all over the world, they're basically the same. <laughs> you have to have some resources, money. Uh, it's just like the games uh, that people play on Facebook. It's hilarious that they should play games when their life is exactly like those games they play. You've got to have food. You've got to have shelter. You've got to have water. <laughs> and uh, and in every economy, you have to work somehow or somehow produce value in the world. People are willing to pay you to uh, get that money that you need to survive. And so it's 
so ingrained. I mean, you're born into it. Your parents told you as soon as you could understand what they were saying, this is the way the world is. This is how an economy works. And your only value as a country is your GDP, and the only value you have as an individual is how much value you bring to the world and people are willing to pay you for that. And every, all these rules are already there, and here comes somebody like you who says this isn't the way the world ought to be or maybe could be. It could be better because the way that we're doing it now, it seems like we're, we're creating a lot of problems while we're calling certain things that we did to create those problems a success. Like I built a great big company without any, you know, without any uh, consideration for the resources that were used to build that company. If you if you're a delivery company like a FedEx or something like that, what kind of a cost is actually taken out of the fact that you drive trucks that produce pollution that heat up the world? I mean, that's never in the Fortune 500 magazine uh, <laughs> article, right? And so we create a lot of problems, and, and you come along, and you want to help change that. And I hear you when you say it's daunting. What the heck? How do you get up every day and face such a seemingly huge problem that needs solving for sure? Okay, well, there are at least three things I want to respond to in that. Uh, I'll start with you used the words tough and daunting. And one of the things that makes my approach different is that I don't see it as tough and daunting. I see it as common sense and totally doable. But it is a matter of rearranging the mindset. And if you rearrange the mindset to where you see the possibilities for doing this work, then it becomes actually kind of easy. And the harder part is just convincing people that it's possible. But I have some experience in that. Back in um, November 1999, I was reading my local newspaper. I'm of the generation that still gets my news in the newspaper. And there was a front-page story that a developer was going to be building 40 trophy homes on the mountain, one mountain over from the state park behind my house. And, like... I was shocked into action, and what shocked me into action was not reading about the developer's plans, but reading all the so-called experts interviewed further down the article who all had variations on, oh, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do. I wish we were conducting this <laughs> over video so I could turn my cam on the mountain behind my house, uh, which is very lovely. I live on a working farm. But the biggest obstacle we had to overcome in saving the mountain, and yes, we did save that mountain, and we did it, I thought it would take five years, and it took 13 months flat, so just over a year. And the biggest thing that we had to do to make that change happen was to shift that mindset away from, oh, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do, and into, sure, we're going to win this thing, and which of these dozen ways are we trying will be the one that actually works. And uh, that's what nice. really... Yeah, what what ended up happening, interestingly enough, is as we were able to make that mindset mindset shift, talk about leverage, we attracted the attention of a very quiet local philanthropist who ended up buying the parcel out from under the developer and giving it to the state to add to the park next door to it. And she did that because our message that this was winnable made her want to help us win it. So, we would have won anyway. We love I mean, those stories, don't we? I mean, I, yeah. I, I like where this is going because there's nothing that people like more than stories of people conquering insurmountable odds. Going, I mean, half of our movies in Hollywood are about that. It's the mm -hmm. hero's journey. I think humanity is just primed for more and more of those stories, aren't they? What a great oh, yeah. angle to I'm, take on it. I, I tell a lot of them in my speeches and in my writing. And the interesting thing was we were already on a path to victory. We had whittled the project down from 40 houses to 32 and then down to 12. So we had already won three-quarters of the battle before this person stepped in and bought the land. So I was totally right when I said that we can do it. But there is that great quote from Henry Ford, um, whether a man thinks he can do a thing or whether a man thinks he cannot, he is right. And we will forgive him the sexist pronouns because in the 30s people didn't know any better. But his point is still totally valid, that mindset is certainly not the whole thing. But it is something you can leverage, and it is something that makes an enormous difference. And being part of victories and celebrating those victories is one of the ways that we do make the change we want in the world. 
And so I, I find that a lot of times I'm a guest on a show like this, and the host will be very, very skeptical about the ability to actually do it. And then I start talking about, for example, uh, there are at least three companies out there that are marketing solar-powered LED lamps in places where kerosene has been the norm. And that doesn't sound like a big deal until you learn that kerosene is not only toxic, which we all know, but it's also highly flammable, and lots and lots of people get hurt and even killed in horrible kerosene fires that are avoidable. That's one thing. Another thing is that they give crappy light. And the third, of course, is that they are not carbon-friendly. It's a fossil fuel. And a fourth is that if you're doing kerosene, you have to be spending that money every month. And if you have, let's say, a $25 household income in some deep, small village in Rwanda, and you're paying $2 a month for kerosene, if you can get rid of that cost, you've just upped yourself up the ladder out of poverty by 10%. So all these factors come together, and you have these companies selling highly profitable lamps at very low cost on time payments, so the family doesn't have to spend any more money than they did before, but they're spending it on something that's going to go away after a few months. That expense becomes neutralized once the lamp is paid for. They have better light, so they can come in from a day in the fields and do some little craft business, and their kids can see better and do better in school as a result of doing better on their homework and eventually get better jobs. And meanwhile, the person who sold them the lamp has a, a good steady income, so that's another factor in here. And all of this is like the perfect storm of goodness. You have this one $20 lamp replicated tens of thousands of times across many different countries as a ladder out of poverty, as a, as a way to make change in the world while making money for the business. When I start talking about these kinds of examples, all of a sudden these hosts kind of get get it, and then you can almost see their eyes light up even over the phone, and like, wow, yeah, and then they start to see that it's doable. And you start looking yeah. at the even bigger issues like climate change and war, and you realize that a lot of those are about resources. And when you frame them as resource issues, they also become conquerable. Yeah. Well, you have a true believer here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, have a, I have a startup that's getting ready to go up uh, it, that is very, very, um, depending on your perspective, it could be seen as pie in the sky. To me, it just seems normal in the way I've always done things. I've been a volunteer for nonprofits and been the executive director for a couple of nonprofits and um you know, it's just, it really is true what you're saying about the the mindset. It, uh, it's kind of crazy. Um, what If anybody listening has ever had, and I'm sure somebody, everybody has had some example of where you just looked at a problem in a different way. One day you woke up, and literally that happened to me today at a problem I was trying to solve and a thing I was trying to make fit into my brain because it was so big. It was just a really, really big thought. And, and sometimes we stand next to those big thoughts like they're skyscrapers and we're little tiny things and we're just looking up going, I can't believe this thing, this thought. And you have to be able to believe it, right? In order to make something manifest, you have to be able to believe you're going to prevent those 40 houses from being on that mountain and you're going to somehow protect that mountain. You have to believe it. You can't just go to a meeting and say, well, that would really be nice if, if that happened. You have to fully commit mentally to that. And, and you guys did, and you seem to be the guy who teaches people how that can be possible, how you can change a thought that seems like a big insurmountable skyscraper kind of a big elephant to chew uh, <laughs> uh, to mix every metaphor I can ever possibly think of, but uh, yeah. you know, well, to, to, to turn it into something that's actually is, doable. Yeah, you do it one bite at a time. That's the classic answer to how do you eat an elephant is, is one bite at a time. Uh, in my case, I'm a vegetarian, so I guess it would be a giant broccoli. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And I, I am the person who, who's teaching this, and it's, it's just so amazing to me. There are thousands of companies out there that have figured out ways to do this. And you come out of the nonprofit world. Nonprofits have a lot to teach business about compassion and about um, working with the bottom of the pyramid, the people most underserved. And businesses have a lot to teach nonprofits about how to be efficient and how to get the job actually done and not get so caught up in, in some of the wrangling that so often happens in nonprofits. And you see so many of the, the 
people and organizations making change are really combining the best of that. I, I think about some of the, the really large foundations that have really been um, the, the beneficiaries of some classic business thinking. Uh, I just heard someone today on an interview make the comment that he thought Bill Gates had actually done more to eradicate hunger than Mother Teresa. Hmm. That's possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, why he not? Yeah, kind of late to the game. He came in as a very kind of classically rapacious, um, nasty to, to his competitors kind of, of business person. And over time evolved into this amazing philanthropist. And this is a pattern I find that has repeated many, many times. You look at the robber barons of the 19th and early 20th centuries, people like Andrew Carnegie or John Rockefeller. What they are largely remembered for today is not the terrible things they did to their labor force, um, but it's for the good they did when they decided that they had enough money to share it. Yeah. I'm gonna go into. I'm gonna go to a weird place because I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be a typical host with you. <laughs> I want to go to a weird, weird place. Do you think that people, that the reason that this is happening and and more and more and just more businesses? You said thousands of businesses are actually doing this in some way to make change, partnering with nonprofits or or whatever they're doing, but. Do you think that humanity just gets bored with the same old story after a while, or large societies just get bored? And I think we're bored. I'm so sick of the paradigm that you know there's powerful people, there's greedy people, there's giving people, there's loving people, there's people who are trounced upon, and there are people who are doing the trouncing. And I mean, there's probably going to be some element of that. There certainly has been since the beginning of civilization uh, and beyond. But I think people are getting bored, and I think that boredom and just tired of the story. This, how many people are checking out of news now? They're just not tuning in because the people say the same thing every single day. And it's not that those things aren't happening, and it's not that there aren't problems in the world that, that you know, need to be dealt with, but individuals, I think, are starting to drop out of that and drop into new paradigms and new thought patterns because we just – we're tired of it. It's the same thing. It has been for many, many, many decades now, and I don't think we can stay in one place. So I like the way it's moving because it's moving to what I think is a positive place, but I think that it must move, don't you? I think you're absolutely right, Jack, and I, I think that we as people with a conscience and some skills can help move the needle, if I can drop another cliche here, um, <laughs> that um, – <laughs> That, that we can all look for the stories that are still exciting. And th there are just so many of them, as I said. I mean, you look at, for example, some of the stuff that is happening in urban food deserts, tremendously exciting stuff around urban farming. Uh, and you can take that. You can take an urban farm. I visited one, by the way, um, eight floors above the South Bronx, a rooftop farm growing beautiful bok choy and kale. <laughs> and, um, mm. you know, a lot of these places, a lot of the urban core is very poorly served by the existing food system. But typically they have vacant lots and they all have vacant rooftops. And rooftops are a resource. Rooftops can be used for energy collection and for food growing. Um, if they slant, then you put up solar collectors. And if uh, they're flat, then you can do some gardening up there and maybe put some solar collectors up as well. But, you know, then you can take these urban farms and you can go out to the neighborhoods. You can go to a high school science class and say, hey, how would you like to learn some hands-on stuff about how food grows? And then these kids are nurturing their little tomato plants and, and they're next thing you know, they're selling pizza sauce to the cafeteria and then eventually they're making their own pizzas and selling them to the uh, fellow students and all of a sudden they've got job skills they've got agricultural knowledge they have a deep understanding of the food system they understand what a tomato is supposed to look and taste like <laughs> which maybe they've never had one before I certainly growing up in the Bronx it was pretty rare that I got a decent tomato to eat let me tell you <laughs> it was uh, mm -hmm. those, those pale pink um, with the, the consistency of styrofoam and about as much flavor and now yeah. I live in a place where tomatoes grow literally outside my door, and they're amazing. 
and yeah, we have to go out there and pick them so they don't rot on the vine. <laughs> but um, well, the whole way we eat is just so different from what I did as a child. And my mom was actually kind of into natural foods, but she just didn't have access to the kind of stuff that my neighbors here in Massachusetts, they take it for granted. Everybody has a garden here, and if they don't have a garden, certainly there's a weekly farmer's market in just about every community, and uh, most days of the week you can get one. And um, on and on it goes. Community-supported agriculture is another great model, which started as people going to the farm to pick up their vegetables every week. And we're members of a farm that works that way, and everything is organic and extremely local, three miles from my house. But, like, my son actually works part-time for a different CSA that he lives in the Boston area, big city. And he's in charge Mm. of distributing food shares to people in the Boston area. The food is trucked out from here. The farm that he's uh, involved with is actually 10 miles from my house. And once a week they bring it down to Boston, and he makes sure that the people who are paying for their shares get their shares. So it's going out um, 100 miles away to a place where people don't have access to that kind of thing that here in the rural area we take for granted. Yeah. That's really awesome. Transportation, energy, medical care, any sector, Jack, you want to look at. Right, right. Well, I mean, there's so much innovation. The the problem that I see that needs to be fixed is one that you are solving by going out and talking to people about this stuff because when people stay in the bubble that they're in, that you always go to Kroger to get your produce and sometimes it really sucks and even if it's organic, at least it's labeled as such, it really sucks, but you're doing the best you can and, and that's within a paradigm. You're talking about people in this particular example who have left that paradigm behind and go, let's grow our own food, let's support local co-ops, let's do that. And what's exactly happening there is a huge chunk of money is getting taken out of the business that used to be the paradigm, which is you go to a local store, you don't know where that food came from, some of it's from 3,000 miles away, the resources and everything it took to get there, you know, the chemicals that were used on it, there's no regulation, blah, 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 blah. And then you just take yourself completely out of that paradigm. You kind of are like a person, in my opinion, who saves people from the matrix. You're kind of like Neo because you're telling people, you're showing people that there is a way to do things differently, but you have to leave the paradigm. You have to pop the bubble you're in to be able to see the other possibilities. And that goes for regular average people, nonprofits, and the businesses that you talk about and work with, I would imagine. Yes, but and that's one model. But it is if that model is too scary, there is another model that is also good, and that's the gradual model. And in my own mm-hmm. life, okay, I joined my first food co-op in 1975, and I did it to save money on food. I didn't have any understanding back then about the, the issues in the food system. Uh, but over time, those became more and more important to me, and over time, my diet shifted to more and more organic, more and more local. And um, But I, I didn't just plunge in all at once, just as I didn't move directly from my childhood home in the Bronx to this farm in Massachusetts. <laughs> I lived in a small town, actually, for 17 years, uh, and that was a very good bridge for me. I wouldn't have been ready. I, I wouldn't have made it here if I had tried to do it all at once. So you think about as fast as possible, but as slow as necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And on every level, I and mean, you... When you were talking before, I was thinking about a certain person who has the most powerful job in the country and um, more money than some countries do, and yet seems so deeply unhappy. And I thought yeah. to myself, what, what would it take to make this person happy? And I don't think I have the answer to that. But just by asking the question, I think it changes the paradigm. Right. Well, and in some people's bubbles are pretty small, and they they get popped right when they realize that money doesn't bring happiness. Because everybody they've seen, all the highlight reels of what it is to be rich makes it look really fun and really, really awesome. And there are people who actually have achieved that, money and happiness. But it's not guaranteed because of the money. It's guaranteed by the type of person that you are, what you do when you wake up every day, how well you care for your emotional and physical well-being is what makes you either happy or not on a, on a more regular basis. 
And so people's bubbles, there's just a lot of little bubbles. You know, you never know where somebody is, the context that they understand things. I've always thought it would be really useful if, the, if Earth was really a spaceship and then there was a hole and all of our atmosphere was leaking out of that spaceship, the side of the, the, side of the spaceship, there wouldn't be the arguments and the strife and the resistance and everything and all these different opinions about what we ought to do. It would be a whole that we all need to come together as human beings and plug businesses and individuals and groups, organizations, and everybody else would be like, oh, look, a whole, that's not good. There's no other earth. We need to fix that or we're all going to die. But it's not like that. But you seem to have a way of really drilling things down to very simple concepts to understand so that you can, when you attack a problem, when you go after something, you can make it so that people understand it like, it, like, that, meta, like that example, a hole in a spaceship. We've got to plug it up or we'll die or we'll be hungry or things that we don't like will happen. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I'll give you a nice simplistic um, principle, actually, uh, and that's that ordinary people can change the world. And this is something I find over, like, with Save the Mountain, or like, you know, oh, nothing we can do. Well, that's the thing that has to change, the idea that there's nothing you can do. Uh, just because you're an ordinary person doesn't mean you can't make social change. And I'll give you a couple of famous examples, okay? Um, we all know about Rosa Parks, the woman who desegregated the entire mm-hmm. southern transportation system. Who was she? She was a seamstress. She was on her way back yeah. from work when she got <laughs> arrested on the bus. Uh, Lech Walesa, f- uh, former president of Poland, the person who uh, spearheaded the movement that kicked the Russians out of Poland. What was he? He was an electrician in a shipyard. I mean, could mm. you think of people more ordinary than a seamstress or a shipyard electrician? And they changed the world. I mean, I'm one guy from my farmhouse in Massachusetts, and I personally instituted the movement that saved the mountain. And notice I didn't say I personally saved the mountain. I started the movement. It got much bigger than me. We got yeah. thousands of people involved. And uh, I used everything I knew about organizing and everything I knew about marketing in that campaign. And I also had other people who knew as much as I knew in those areas about other things, such as how to lobby the government or how to raise money that I really didn't know about. So it was very much right. a team But because it was the kind of thing it was, we got a lot of people involved, a lot of people. And it was it was yeah. tremendously exciting, and it it really kind of led me to do this work. It's it's of all the things that pushed me to do this, that was the one that gave me the biggest push. Okay, and I should so mention that my... I I I work with individual companies on finding the profitable products and services that they can offer that make a difference. I speak on this. Um, I. I write, my most recent book is called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, and Guerrilla is spelled G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. My co-author came up with a great brand, but it's hard to spell. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that was uh, Jay Conrad Levinson, the late uh, great marketing genius who came up with the Guerrilla Marketing idea back in 1984. I've done two books with him. And... Um, all of these are ways that I spread the message out, and all of these are ways that I feel like I'm having an impact. And our impact is right. always greater when we work with other people. We can really multiply our impact. And one other thing, going way back, remember I said after your first long paragraph, I said I wanted to respond to a few things. One thing that I didn't get to respond to yet was the idea that in order to make the economy work, we have to count all the costs. You had talked about the GDP and how things that contribute negatively to our life quality are increasing the GDP, and that's the only thing that economists measure. That has to change. And the other piece of it that has to change is externalizing out the costs. If if somebody dumps uh, pollutants in a lake and then the government pays to clean it up, that company is not paying the cost of their action. And we need to be much more systemic about that. That's begun to change in the last 50 years after hundreds of years of companies doing whatever they wanted without regard to anybody else's life or property or, or quality of life or, or values or all the rest of it. But that has to really become an established principle in the economy. And then we yeah. also have to look at how do we count things like the woman staying at home to take care of kids. 
Right now, that has a zero value in the traditional GDP. But it has a tremendous value in terms of empowering other people in the household to have the time to go out and make a living, ditto with people who are growing their own food. There's a whole lot of stuff that we have to count. So we have to count all the benefits and all the costs. Yeah. Yeah, I was just uh, reading an article in Forbes, no <laughs> weird, uh, for this article on universal basic income. It's getting enough traction now that it's showing up in some of the places you'd expect to be not really that impressed or interested or in the discussion, but they're very, very open to it now in places that are very strange. It would be more conservative in that regard yeah. around things yeah. like universal basic income and yeah, how we're going to have to figure out what to do with the millions of people that are displaced from automation. They'll have to figure yeah. something out. Yes. Or and they're going to come with the pitchforks and the torches. <laughs> exactly, yeah. An another very conservative magazine that has published some surprisingly progressive viewpoints is the British magazine, The Economist. Uh-huh. So yeah. The I think, I think I the world is – I mean, these – these little millennials or whatever we're calling the kids that are coming up with all the energy and have all the, you know, I'm Generation X, so I'm beyond my super hyper energy <laughs> building bridges single-handedly kind of stuff and uh, no, more in leadership <laughs> like, like we I'm get 60, to be. I'm well, I know, I know, but we like, to, <laughs> we, we like to engage thousands of people to help us, and back then we all thought we could just lift the mountain up ourselves. By ourselves. <laughs> and they're the ones, they're getting into these companies and they're bringing the message to the older folks who have been doing business the same way all the time. It's really infectious because that's how something like that ends up in Forbes or The Economist is the, the youth who have grown up in a world where they've seen how we were doing things as they were growing up. And then they also lived in a world that is progressively more progressive in its, in its ideology, in its way of, uh, you know, how I grew up, and, and so did you. You grew up in a world where business and nonprofits and business and, and, and um, you know, causes and things like that, all of those were always, always separate. Businesses may donate to a, 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 and that wasn't even as prevalent when I was born, but businesses could donate to that. Uh, and then you could go and work for a nonprofit, but they were totally separate. There was never partnerships between nonprofits, or very, very rarely par significant partnerships between nonprofits and businesses that, you know, businesses wouldn't act like they're just giving a handout, you know, and that we're not going to make any money at this. We're just really good people. Look at us being good people as part of this company helping in this thing. It really was more recently that people started to. Uh, find ways to profit, find ways that this fits into the economy to be a good company, to do good things like Tom's Shoes and things like that, you can also be a profitable company. And that's kind of recent, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd say the last 40 years or so, it's definitely been a big uptick. There are companies that have been doing this for a long, long time. And actually, if you go way back, like the chocolate industry of all things, uh, Hershey's in the United States, Cadbury in the U.K., they were founded by social entrepreneurs. Working conditions at those factories were so much better than practically any other job you could get back then. They, were, they built these uh, kind of paternalistic housing communities where they really were about taking care of their workers. But it was only mm. a very, very small handful, I'd say, really starting with the boomers. I'm kind of a, a middle to late baby boomer. I'm 60. So the, the people who are a few years ahead of me, uh, are, a lot of those started very socially progressive companies back in, in the prehistoric era. I mean, like Patagonia was founded, I think, in the 1950s. Yeah, um, yeah, Patagonia, Rocky one of my favorite companies. was founded in the 1970s, and Amory Lovins has been writing about how we can get to zero fossil fuel, zero nuclear for decades. Um, you know, so it's, it, it has been out there, but it's, it's gaining critical mass. I went to a conference in March called the Responsible Business Summit, and the whole premise of that summit was that you can make a profit doing good. And, yeah, there is a PR benefit from being a philanthropist, but there's beyond that. You can actually have your core day-to-day -day activities make a profit and a difference. And let me tell you some of the companies that were there, okay? I mean, some you'd expect, like Timberland and Unilever, but also Coca-Cola, Pirelli, um, Ford, 
you know, major, major players in the economy globally were at this conference. Many of them were wow. presenting. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it was it was quite. It's something. a safe environment, isn't it? Isn't if you're a big corporation, whatever you thought was not safe about this before, it feels like they're not so worried as they used to be. And I think it's probably because they feel like there's enough market out there for their particular product and brand that uh, believes the same things that it's safer for them to take part. These unusual players in the game coming into the game feeling like they're not going to be sacrificing from their more, you know, too many of their more conservative or whoever would have a problem with what they want to do and how they want to help. Um, and, and the thing is, you can look like you're helping. You can attach yourself, and a lot of companies did that, right? They, they attached themselves for the publicity of it and thought that that was the angle to go, um, but they, didn't re- they weren't really doing anything. They were attaching themselves to organizations that were milquetoast at best and not very mm-hmm. effective mm-hmm. at what they do. Sometimes the companies would make up an organization and then support its own organization to look more like it was doing something than it actually ever really accomplished. But yeah, I think there's that's a whole thing about now. greenwashing. But I, I want to go back and say you, t- you say the companies are seeing it less risky now to do the right thing. I'm going to say something maybe you'll find very radical. Uh, and that's that companies that are not doing this are taking a risk. Your market will mm-hmm. betray you if you continue to go on the path of doing exactly the same thing as business has been done for hundreds of years and not paying attention to the environment and not paying attention to the social goods and not paying attention to the diversity issues. You're going to dig yourself in a hole that you can't get out of, and you're going to go bankrupt. That, uh, you know, it might be tomorrow, it might be 10 years from now, but it is not a, um, a path that, that you can maintain because your market, and especially as the market gets younger and the millennials really step up to the plate as purchasers, they demand it. If, if This is why you look at the ice cream world, okay? There are two companies that really dominate super premium ice cream in the United States. Uh, any, any guesses who they are? Well, my wife would say Blue Bunny, but I know that's not one of them. <laughs> I've never even heard of that brand. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it came out of Louisiana, and uh, that's what they grew up with and that she loves. <laughs> so well, I don't know. haagen uh, is one. And the other is that funny little upstart from Vermont with the hippies and the beards and the handwritten containers. Ah, uh, yeah, I worked there. I worked there in Chicago. I scooped their ice cream. Ah, for a little bit. Well, then you know a lot about what I'm going to say. You know that they walk their talk. You know that they uh, some of their scoop shops hire people with uh, cognitive disabilities. You know that they fund things like solar festivals. And I am going to posit that the reason that this crazy little company in, in nowhere Vermont has 40 to 45 percent of the super premium ice cream market share, with Haagen-Dazs having about the same. Haagen-Dazs, of course, has the, the resources of huge corporations. It was owned by Pillsbury for a while. I think Nestle might have it now. Um, and at, Ben & Jerry's also was bought out by Unilever, but they retained operational independence, and that was part of the buy-sell agreement and a very key part. Um, but... The, the only reason I think that, that Ben & Jerry's was able to be there on the shelves right next to Haagen-Dazs and, and to really become a, a major national and international player. I was just in Portugal. It's amazing how many ice cream – it's a different model. They don't have scoop shops there, but they, they, they kind of do the good humor thing where they put their ice cream prepackaged in a lot of convenience stores. Ben & Jerry's everywhere you look in Portugal. Um, yeah. And, um, I'm going to say that the reason that they did as well as they did and that they're one of the only two brands that most people can name across the country is precisely because of all that social and environmental consciousness. Because if you're sitting there and you've got $12 in your hand and you want a pint of super premium ice cream, are you going to go for the cold corporate Exxon of ice cream or are you going to go for these people with a lot of personality who are doing good in the world and you want your $4 to make a difference? And there's enough yeah. people that feel that way, that Ben & Jerry's is a viable brand and, and was able to, as I said, negotiate very favorable terms with Unilever. And interestingly enough, Ben & Jerry's was one of the first companies to do what's called B Corporation certification. 
B stands for benefit. Mm. It means you're allowed legally to put something other than short-term profit on the agenda. It's a, a new business format that's only come up in the last 15, 20 years. And corporately, Unilever, this percolated up from Ben & Jerry's. Unilever is going to be by far the biggest corporation to have done B Corp. They're in the process. It's a multi-year effort. It's not a simple thing for a giant with thousands of different kinds of brands to do. But oh, like man. It, it actually worked. This, this theory that you can buy a small, innovative unit and have some of the in innovation trickle up. Now, a lot of the credit goes to their very visionary CEO. But, you know, a lot of companies get this. I, I am not a fan of Walmart in a lot of things, but on greening your business, oh, my goodness. Walmart figured out years ago that they could slash their energy costs, reduce um, uh, the cost of operating the stores tremendously, make a fortune selling things like organic food and um, low-wattage light bulbs to people who have, for the most part, never set foot in a Whole Foods in their life and have no intention of doing so. They doubled the market for organic food. By by making yeah. it accessible to working class people who are not hippies, fifteen billion a year worth. Yeah, I man, okay, you said a lot. I have to try to get back to a couple of things I want to elucidate <laughs> a little bit more here, because you said a lot. One of the things I want people to hear is that we talked about Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's started doing this stuff when the when when the the playing field was not nearly as friendly as it is today. In fact, it's friendlier because of places like Ben & Jerry were more yes. trailblazing for us business people. And I think that that's something to really note. It's not, we're, not talking, we're talking about a company that goes back a little ways, enough a ways that it's, it's gotten to where it is. And when you put those two together, what a beautiful picture you drew. When you put Haagen-Dazs next to Ben & Jerry's, and you talked about the cold, the corporate, they had all the ups. What everybody assumes is the way that you can the only way you can get to be a company like Hagen does and have that kind of market share is that you had to be owned by Exxon. You had to have huge backing. It's it's incredibly hard to get a new product in the food or drink space as it is, to get into all the convenience stores and everything else. And and, and you have a perfect example sitting right next to it that did exactly none of that to get where they are. And that what they did is what you've been talking about all day. And they've done, they didn't do anything else, right? There were no tricks up their sleeves. They didn't have any special, you know, subsidies or any crap like that. No, it was no truly subsidies. a business. They, they, they did have a very good eye for guerrilla marketing. So, like, when Pillsbury tried to keep them out of the store shelves, they made the equivalent – this was before social media existed, but they did – the equivalent of a social media campaign to shame Pillsbury, and they had they ran ads saying, "What's the doughboy afraid of?" And it became this viral thing, <laughs> and it backfired totally on on Pillsbury, and, and Ben and Jerry's really took off. Yeah, but the possibility you you just showed, I think, one of the best examples I've ever seen, and it wasn't even the way necessarily in the context of what you were talking about, but I think that's why I wanted to go back to it, because in addition to all the good stuff that you brought up there, it's proving to people who are listening right now, who are ever coming into any kind of content like this, that you can, you don't have to go meet up with nonprofits. You don't have to go, well, I mean, because that's an easy way to do it. And if you have one that really sticks with your mission and, and it, you know, it, it's just an obvious fit, then no need to recreate the wheel and they they keep their you know autonomy. You your company, they their organization, and all that stuff. But another model is the Ben and Jerry's type model, or the Tom Shoes, or whoever you want to use as an example, where you can't tell the difference between the business part and the 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 good part because it's all so intertwined. I remember yeah, coming up, a lot of people would have on their web page, like page six, way deep inside, that one percent or a half a percent of our profits go to something and you could tell somebody felt like they needed to put that there but it's not the company's forefront it's not they don't care it, you know it was something that people felt like they had to do and if you look at a place like Ben and Jerry's or, or Tom's or something like that they it, you can't tell that there's a business there sometimes I mean it just feels so good all around that there's no 
there's no need. I love how they're melding together like that too. To just go off yeah. on another tangent, I think Shell, we could probably talk for ten years oh, about probably. this stuff. <laughs> I'd have to stop every now and then write another book. <laughs> yeah, take a breath, get some coffee. <laughs> for well, so I mean, what do you think about that? That's really cool. We we started out talking about, and I wanted to do it that way. I wanted to be the devil's advocate in the beginning, so we could get you set up perfectly for what I knew you were going to be able to bring to the table today, and. But but I started out with all of that cynicism, that skepticism, because that is what's still pretty prevalent in the world. There, this isn't this is known to you and me and millions of people, but it's not critical mass, and and the degree that people know is not nearly as much that you and I do. It's pretty small still in some ways. It's growing and it's exciting that it's growing, but there is a lot of hesitation. Like you said, most hosts are really surprised by your answers and your confidence that we can make these giant changes that seem to everyone else to be insurmountable. But I think that you've given some really good examples so far about how that is not the case. It can, you, we can do some really powerful things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, we've only barely scratched the surface of what is possible. I have uh, a number of resources on goingbeyondsustainability.com, including – I have uh, a self-administered green business assessment and uh, social change, social entrepreneurship business assessment. There are links. They're actually on another site, but you can get to them from goingbeyondsustainability.com. And one of the things that I offer is that if anybody takes the time and trouble to go through one or both of those um, instruments, and they don't take long to complete, that I will actually spend some time on the phone for free talking about what these results mean and what kinds of ventures your own company could be doing to really move on this path faster. And, of course, to go beyond that, I am totally available for individual consulting and training and, and speaking and inspiring in all sorts of different ways. Well, let's talk about that for a quick second here because that's really important. This stuff might all sound really great to anyone who's listening, and if you're really excited by it, you probably also have a lot more questions than you have answers because it's one of those things. We, we couldn't get into the, the technical details of how this would be done, plus you can't possibly do that because every company is different and everybody's every situation is, is well, But let me interrupt yeah. with one very specific example which nobody ever thinks about. It's like, okay, yeah. so you, you're, you're, let's say you just own a building with a 50-foot ceiling. Let's say it's a sports arena or something like that or even mm -hmm. a big shopping center, and you're thinking about changing to LED bulbs. And, you know, the LED bulbs, they've come way down in price. You can usually get them for about a buck. But back when I was researching, about 10 bucks a piece. And let's say you had 50 of them that you would be changing every year typically if you were using the regular kind of bulbs. And these have a 10 to 15-year lifespan. I did a little math and discovered that if people switch to LED bulbs, their real cost if they've got that 50-foot ceiling, it's not the $10 for the bulb. It's the 50 bucks an hour it's going to take to pay somebody $16, $20 an hour, drive a bucket loader over there, go up in the cherry picker, change the life. It's the labor factor and the equipment. Mm. So if you can replace the one-year bulb with a 10-year bulb, and you do 50 of those a year, I figured out that it saved about $4 million over the life of the bulbs. Oh, wow. I never even thought about that angle. That's pretty cool. <laughs> not not even – never crossed my mind. Yeah. Never the labor and the, the material cost. Just like people never think about how much water they use brushing their teeth running at full force. I use a trickle, and I turn it off, and I turn it back on to rinse. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So I think that what's happening here is is, is you're going to have to work with some. Okay, so I'm talking to everybody, your business owners, you, you're, you're interested in this and everything. You need to work with somebody on this, and it's not because you're a good person. I'm sure you are. But and this isn't none of the stuff that we talked about here today was just feel good. In fact, I don't think we mentioned that, but maybe once, if at all. It really is business, and this is how business is done. And if you need to – rejigger your business into a direction that you never maybe you even thought I would love to work with an organization or I would like to create an organization or a foundation or whatever and really have that in my business on the front page so people saw what we care about before we before they necessarily got right into the product line 
so they could see that we're this before anything else. And, oh, by the way, we have some really killer products, which they're going to buy now because they love you. If you need to get that done, you want to talk to somebody like Shell because how quick can you look at somebody's situation, having done this probably countless times, uh, you know, how can you look at a big company, a medium size, a small company, listen to what they care about, and, and go, here's what you need to do and come up with a plan for them? How quickly can that happen? Well, I can usually find five or six different things in the first 15 to 30 minutes, and then which ones we explore and how deep we go, that's all very individualistic. But uh, usually the opportunities are, are really sitting there waiting to be seen, and I'm very good at spotting them. And I'm also very right. good at thinking with a company about how not everybody has evolved and wants to buy the, the, the green and socially conscious stuff. One of the other points that I make, and I do this in my, making green sex is I focus a lot of energy on what is your messaging for which audiences, because you cannot message the same way to every audience. If your market includes the guy who's smoking a cigar while driving his Hummer a quarter mile to the convenience store, you can't sell him on um, go green because it's good for the planet. He ain't going to care. Okay. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, the mother of a child with asthma um, is going to be deeply, deeply health conscious and is going to look real carefully at what chemicals are you exposing her child to and uh, how safe is this. You need to address her concerns very differently. So I talk about marketing to the deep green, the lazy green, and the non-green markets as, as a uh, a simplification, but something that can at least get you started thinking in this way. Because the way you right. reach that Hummer-driving guy is not by saying it's better for the planet. You say it's more durable, it costs less, um, it's made better, you'll feel better using it. You, you go to the, the, the key benefit points, and then you wrap it around and you say, by the way, this is because of the green choices we made, and here's why. Yeah. And if anybody's wondering why Shell is only talking about green things, he's not. He's not only talking about it because this social justice and everything comes behind a proper green movement because it touches absolutely every single other thing on this planet because there's nothing important beyond keeping breathable air <laughs> and arable land and all of the things that it takes for, you know, this, is, this touches then on human rights, social issues, education, everything else. And that's what I preached through the entire 90s when I was with environmental groups is if we solve problems from this height down, this is an umbrella issue, everything falls under that. Habitat yeah, loss, species, I, you know, all of that. Yeah. Of my four key issues, hunger, poverty, war, and climate change, only climate change is specifically about the environment. But as you said, all of the others are deeply affected by it. Right, right. Yeah. So, so... <laughs> Words of encouragement. Tell somebody who is thinking, wow, this is really great. It also sounds like it would actually be good for my business. It doesn't sound like it would be a sidestepping thing or a side gig for my business. Thank goodness because I'm so busy, uh, as any successful business owner should be. Um, it's all sounding good to those guys. Give some words of encouragement to what they're – take an example of any kind of business you'd like to choose – and say they start working on it, they work with you or somebody like you uh, to get a plan together, what's their business and what's their life and everything else looking like this time next year uh, based on examples and experience that you've had before? Okay. Um, they would be, first of all, probably having a much greater degree of customer loyalty and employee loyalty, which means lower need to hire and train new people, which is an enormous savings. It's one of those things like changing the light bulbs where the hidden costs are much larger than the obvious costs. Um, mm -hmm. It means that regulators will not be breathing down your neck looking for the next violation. Um, they see you as a progressive company that is going to make progress on your own, and just because Trump wants to eliminate the EPA doesn't mean he's going to succeed and doesn't mean the regulators are going to go away. Uh, it means that you'll be able to probably look at some brand-new profit centers that you never thought about uh, that maybe even you're paying to dispose of right now. General Electric uh, is an example of that. I, I have the number in the book, and I don't really want to take the time to search for it as we're winding up the call. But 
Um, it's something, I think, like $220 million worth of revenue that they now generate from something they used to have to pay to haul away. Hmm. Uh, so you're going to save costs, you're going to build loyalty, you're going to have more profitable products and services. There really isn't any downside. And the thing is, even a complex manufacturer where you're worried about the equipment costs and whatnot, there's so much easy, quick stuff you can do. And then you can fund the bigger changes out of the savings from those easy, quick things. But there's no reason not to get started. And uh, we will continue to see escalation in the cost of fossil fuels. We will continue to see um, lowering of the cost of clean energy. The, my goodness, when I put solar on my house in 2004, it, it was so much more expensive than it is now. Yeah. One kilowatt back then cost $10,000. Now you can oh, probably man. get four or five for that. So the prices are falling on that. The prices will continue to go up on fossil fuels. Nuclear will continue to be unworkable. Uh, that is not going to solve the problem, and it's not a particularly green solution anyway. So uh, you're going to be not having to work as hard to bring people in the door, and what's even better is you're not going to be having to work so hard to bring them back because if they're happy with what they're buying and they've bought good stuff from you, they're going to come back and buy again. You're going to be better positioned to withstand some of the swings in the market, um, such as the move to online shopping that affects a lot of small retailers in a, in a very big way. But the more of a relationship you have with your customer and the more that relationship is based on the good you do in your own community and in the world, the more people will put their credit card back in their wallet and get on their bicycle and go over to you in person, if I can stretch the metaphor. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and there's one one more very specific thing that we're watching uh, happening at Divisio, where we put nonprofits and business together as our business model. <laughs> uh, and that is, when you hook up with a nonprofit, there's nobody more passionate on an email list than people who are passionate about the nonprofit that they're supporting. In other mm -hmm. words. If you had a joint venture partner who was another business who had a list of wildly engaged for, for the average uh, list of you know, people who just buy information products or hard goods or whatever, and it can be the most engaged that a person could possibly get an email list, it won't touch the amount of enthusiasm that people on a nonprofit's email list have mm -hmm. for whatever that nonprofit says they must go do. And if you are the company that they say, we've just partnered up with these guys, they're going to give you guys this huge discount, plus a huge percentage of the rest is going to come to us. And every time you buy this product through this link, it's going to come to us. How, how would you use that enthusiasm in your bit to, to, to grow your business? And the first thing that comes to mind, and it, this is what happens, is all those people who are turned on by a new way to raise money for their cause that they really love, because it gets boring after a while, save the lions, save the tigers, save the Serengeti, it's the same message. Nonprofits are looking for new ways to monetize the passion that their followers have. How many of those people are going to go out to social media on the urging of the nonprofit uh, as you help them as the business owner to understand how they can get the biggest bang for this program that you've just launched? Tell them to go out on social media. Well, now you've got an army of hyper-passionate people out there sharing your product, but they're really talking about the message of they really care about this nonprofit, and if you go do this, you should anyway. This is you know, what you should buy anyway blah, blah, blah. It's a little more expensive, but it is because of this. But who cares because it's for a good cause? Now you can start to see your marketing starts to turn on. You can put that hat on and go, holy crap, I would never get that out of a pure business environment, not in a million years. For sure. Am I and, close? You know, Jack, you and I should have a conversation outside of this call about that and about uh, the work that Divisio does and how it might, you know, there may be ways for us to combine our expertise and offer something really powerful to people. And um, I imagine you have my email, and if not, Gina certainly does, And or, or you can just go to me on Twitter, which is my name, Shell Horowitz, S-H-E-L-H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z, uh, no punctuation. And let's connect. I'm actually leaving town, but I will be back in mid-July, and we should definitely have a conversation. And, and again, I want to reiterate for the people listening that there is a lot that, 
really in a very short time we can find opportunities, no matter what kind of business you have, uh, to be doing more good in the world while making more money and, and lowering costs. It seems to me that this is a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shell, I, we, yeah, I wish we had more time. We're totally out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Leverage Masters today. Uh, and I know Gina is going to want to be on that call as well with you <laughs> to talk about the video and everything. So awesome show today. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. And Gina, back welcome. to you. If, if people want to uh, reach me, it's 413-586-2388, S-H-E-L at greenandprofitable.com, um, or on the website contact form at goingbeyondsustainability.com. And I imagine you'll put all that on the show page. Absolutely. Right below wherever you're listening to this now. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so much, so much so. And we will definitely look forward to that call with the three of us. That will be awesome. Great. Okay. And we will be back same time, same place next week. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Great show, guys. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters.